Greetings again in the name of our Lord Jesus, this part of the service. It's been two weeks since I was here and I was wondering if it's going to be here yet when I get back and I'm glad it doesn't depend on me. (laughs) It's the Lord's church. I think of that song too. When the trump shall sound and uh, however that song goes, I remember as a child, I was afraid. I was scared. I remember one time I was, uh, I went in the evening, went to bed in my bed like normal, and all of a sudden I heard a tremendous noise outside, and I thought, oh, the Lord's coming back. It was a combine going past our window, making a lot of noise. But I don't do that anymore. There's a peace that goes beyond whatever circumstances. I know we need to deal with life, and I know that we have we have issues that we face that that uh, the stormy seas and so on. But like the Lord Jesus told Peter to come out on the water, and long as he kept his face on the Lord Jesus, there was that um, you can walk on water <laughs> if you stay with the Lord Jesus and look at him at his face. But too many times don't we look aside, look at the things of life. Well, before we go, do you mind standing again for a word of prayer? Let's pray before we on the message. Heavenly Father, we are thankful and grateful to you because of the blood of Jesus that it speaks peace within and peace in our souls and peace, yes, Lord, even in our circumstances, though we do not always understand. Lord, the reality is we will not understand everything till we come through in eternity. But Lord, today we have faith. Today we can trust. And I pray, Lord, you would meet with us this morning where each one of us is at. And I pray, Lord, you'd instruct us from your word what you want us to know, to learn, to experience in our lives. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I just came back from a week of what is called the Kingdom Discipleship Conference for Ministers. It was a brand new endeavor. I don't think I would bore you with the report of it, except it was new. It's different, and I thought you might want to know a little bit about it. But it was a new endeavor, and so I'll share a little bit. The invitation was given to various Mennonite Anabaptist, not Mennonite, Anabaptist background people and groups, which makes it unique. And uh, I was, there were bishops and ministers and deacons and missionaries and elders and pastors and all kinds of names there. And for once, I was at a place where most of the people, I think, were older than I. Lots of white hair there, lots of bald heads there, lots of wisdom there. And that was different. Um, Some of the churches represented there were charity churches, Beachy Amish, Mennonite, River Brethren, Old Order Baptists, no, Old German Baptist Brethren, New Conference, and various independent congregations. And... uh, Brother Leonard Martin from Harmony preached two messages there. Uh, actually, John was planning to be there until he got called to Tanzania. It was held in western Ohio at a Methodist camp meeting site. I don't know if you ever saw those camp meetings. Some kind of a big hall and a whole bunch of little cottages or dorms around it. It was an excellent facility for that. And above that, Burn Christian Fellowship provided uh, meals and to provide it to clean up the service, uh, put my perspective of hospitality up a couple notches, I must say. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about the topical focus of those meetings. 
it might be an interest to some of us here. The topical focus was, and this would be, if you, take, if you take the brochure, you just take it right off the brochure, the topical focus was, we gather in recognition that there are many ways in which we Anabaptist-type churches are falling short and in need. We desperately need to hear from God and recommit ourselves to the vision of kingdom Christianity set forth in the life and message of Jesus. This message is being attacked diluted and weakened by materialism, individualism, and the influence of modern Christianity. That was a topical focus. The inspirational focus of the meetings was this. The messengers of this kingdom, that's of course talking about the ministry, the messengers of this kingdom are also being afflicted with weariness of body, turmoil and unrest in their spirit, needs in their homes, confusion in the churches, and distractions from the world. These messengers and shepherds need time to come away and be refreshed, purified in spirit, pastored and equipped so that they can pour out their lives to others. So those were the two focuses. And... um, the first focus just, uh, in the evening when we gathered together on Monday evening, Brother Alan Troyer from Bern got up and he just gave a little bit of a welcome. And he made one statement that I wrote down. He said, if our churches keep progressing as rapidly as they are now, in 15 or 20 years, they will be swallowed up by evangelicalism. He said they will be assimilated into the American church. And uh, Dale Heisey was there, and his messages focused primarily on that topic. He said he gets into many homes. Dale Heisey um, gets into many homes. Uh, He had a car there that needed to come back in PA. He got the car from PA, and he was out in Ohio, and he wasn't going back. He was going to this state first, and then he was going to go to this state, and he was going to go to this state, and he was going to go to this state. Then he was going to go to this state, and then he was going to go to Costa Rica, which is his home. He gets into many homes. And he said he looks at the bookshelves in those homes, and he finds the same books pretty well in all the homes. But he says most of those are evangelical authors. You can learn a lot from them. But he said... The thinking over time shifts. He said there's one popular woman psychologist that earned $95 million in one year's time selling her feel-good, psychological feel-good message in books. I won't give her name. I don't think I had any of her books on my shelf. (laughs) But he apparently saw in a lot of homes. He said instead of being, and he talked about the pilgrim church, and he said instead of becoming uh, being pilgrims, we are becoming residents. He said we could put a sign out in front of our yard, put a sign, hammer a sign in our yard, and he said a pilgrim lives here. But he said our lives should have that sign all over us all the time, that you are a pilgrim. Then, the other major focus was on the minister, the leaders there. I don't know if you can verify this, but he said that uh, when a student goes to school, that 10 to 15% of what they take home comes from the curriculum, and 85 to 85 to 90% comes from the teacher, the influence. He said, we spend a tremendous amount of money on curriculum. The uh, rod and staff, CLE, and down the line, the conservative folks have spent a lot of time and money and resources on curriculum. He said, maybe we should spend a little more emphasis on the teachers. Maybe that's something for us fathers, too, to do. So the meeting was intended to prepare and equip and inspire pastors so they can be more effective 
on ministering to their congregation. They were teaching on prayer, on marriage, on family, on the anointing of God, on repentance and humility. And then the third thing, which always happens in meetings like this, is there was the fellowship. There were two and a half hour breaks between for lunch and for supper. And the last service was at 8.30 and there was no lights out time. Can you imagine a Bible school with that? But there were new relationships established. There were old ones renewed. There were many discussions, some in bigger groups, some one-on-one. Quite often, you would find a large group around certain individuals. Abner Kaufman, Dale Heisey, and Merle Flory, and some others. But there were many small groups and many one-on-one conversations, and there were many uh, spontaneous prayer meetings. I wish you could have all been there. There were a lot of requests to have something like that again with the wives included. And Leonard said he will ask the Ohio to come to Bible school. So we'll see what happens with that. Okay, enough of that. Uh, the last two messages I preached here were about Christum, Christ, uh, kingdom Christians and the two kingdoms. And as I considered that, I didn't know if I wanted to uh, have another topic that's down that line. But this topic that I have is not particular. Well, it is particular to Anabaptist Christian because they have always believed it. But it's not peculiar to them only. In fact, there are numerous, what we would call non-Anabaptist Christians who believe this. And there are numerous people in Anabaptist churches who do not understand this. So I think it's a worthwhile topic. In fact, there's probably some here who either don't understand it or reject it. In fact, I need a better concept and a experience of it in my own life. And it's the title of the message is The Way of the Cross. I am a truck driver, and when I go to a new warehouse that I was not at before, I need to discover how they operate. Each warehouse, each business is different. And so um, I go in there and I need to find out some places you're supposed to back up to the dock when you get there. At other places, you better not dare back up at the dock before you go into the receiver. Some of the places, you actually need to stay out on the street and walk in. And if you go in and you're in the lot, they'll make you go out and park in the street. At some warehouses, you're not permitted to go on the dock. In others, you have to unload your load. Uh, Some of them, you're not allowed to go on the dock unless you put a hairnet on and a beard net or maybe a fluorescent vest or maybe steel-toed shoes. Other places, they couldn't care how you come on the dock. Just get the thing unloaded. But the point is, you need to learn the culture of the company. You need to learn how they operate. Each company has a culture. Each company operates under some value system. You know, when someone encounters you as a person, they need to do the same thing. As a new person, you need someone new. You don't know who they are. They are their own warehouse. They don't know who you are, and they get to learn to know you. They need to learn to know how you operate. Are you a selfish person or a giving person? Are you sensitive and easily hurt? Or are you gracious and giving? Are you talkative and argumentative? Are you listening? I could give more examples this morning, but this morning I'm going to use four different 
for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it dynamics that we as people adhere to. And it's the thing that people have always adhered to. In the day of the Lord Jesus, there were the four things. The way of the law, the way of wisdom, the way of power, and the way of the cross. Four ways that a person can operate under. I'm going to do some generalization to bring out these points, some generalization of culture. You understand that when you generalize, you don't hit all the highs and lows. You just generalize. But we're going to do that this morning to make the points. And uh, so we have four things, the law, wisdom, power, and the cross. And first we're going to talk about the way of law, the way of the law. Well, in Jesus' day, who were the people who went the way of the law? Was it the Pharisees? Was it not? The way of the law is an attempt to control behavior and practices by legislating it. It usually comes from a desire to promote good ethical behavior and to forbid vices and sins. It consists of a lot of do's and don'ts. It attempts to produce a good and useful life by outside control. It is actually an attempt to affect spiritual change through imposing requirements rather than reaching for hearts and ensuring that an authentic cross experience change. Let me reread that. It is an attempt, the way of the law is an attempt to effect spiritual change through imposing requirements rather than reaching for hearts and ensuring that an authentic cross experience has rewritten the life fundamentals. You get that. <laughs> you want me to read it again. The law is an attempt to effect spiritual change through imposing requirements, rather than reaching for hearts and ensuring that an authentic cross experience has rewritten the life fundamentals. It sets out to change behavior rather than substance. It deals with effects and ignores the essence. And in fact, this legal approach to ethics is so pervasive that many believe that they can bring about fundamental changes in spiritually cold churches through those means. It is the allure of the law. Does anyone actually know what the law actually does? It actually brings freedom, right? No? Hmm? Condemnation? There's one. I even thought of that one. The law brings condemnation. Does it bring power with it? Victory with it? It brings bondage with it. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're talking about the way of the law. One of the ways with which people operate. Galatians chapter 2, I'm just going to read one verse here. Verse 19. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew what he was talking about. He said in verse 19, this is his testimony actually. For I... Through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. That is actually a radical testimony for a Pharisee. Paul had put his full confidence in keeping the law in order to please God. Now he says that he died to that whole concept or method as a means to please God. In fact, he said he died to that method so that he could please God. I died so that I might live unto God. What did he do instead? Instead of living by the law, 
instead of having those requirements and those do's and don'ts imposed on him, what did he do instead? Right in the next verse, he said, I am crucified with Christ. It is the way of the cross in contrast to the way of the law. And just hold on to that thought. I am crucified with Christ. We're going to explain that later, what that means. But right now, we're not going to. I just want to bring out the contrast of the two. Now, when it comes to the law, when it comes to rules and regulations, I know we put fences at the edges of cliffs to keep people from falling off. I know we believe in a united testimony and a united um, united way of practice that speaks a coherent witness and a testimony to the people around us. I know all that. That is, I'm not, I'm not condemning that. I'm not saying you shouldn't put fences up and have, you do that in your home. You do that, you, you do that. But by law, the law by legislation will never bring life and freedom. So that is the way of the law. The uh, Pharisees, the Jews, had the way of the law. Okay, let's go to the second point, the way of wisdom. In Jesus' day, who pursued wisdom? Anybody have any idea? Any thoughts? Yes. The scribes, okay. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of the Jews. I was thinking of another culture. That would fit pretty close, probably. The Greeks, the Greeks. Wisdom, philosophy, that was Greek all the way through. The Greeks were always preoccupied with the pursuit of wisdom and the discussion of ideas and humanistic answers to man's problems. There's no problem that philosophy can't fix, right? Or at least improve. Today, that thought has morphed into psychology. The answer to man's problem is education. The answer to personal, relational problems is to find the right mixture of mental insight and physical manipulation. You got a problem, you need to have the right mixture of mental insight and the right mixture of physical manipulation, and it'll solve your problems. You'll improve your relationships. Is your marriage on the rocks? Got to get the right insights. Got to get the right boundaries in your life. Got to... Are you addicted to something that negatively affects your life? We have the answers for you. Now, is, is education and insights in your life wrong? No, unless that education and insight is humanistic thinking. Then it's wrong. So... The Greeks were preoccupied with wisdom and the discussion of ideas. They were convinced that any practical or philosophical question could be answered by disciplined thought. The Greeks made wisdom and knowledge the foundation of your life. Wisdom and knowledge, all of life is built on your humanistic understanding of life. And they defended their thinking. I say it this way, actually. The um, it's interesting thing is, they didn't all think the same. If you know anything about Greek mythology, not mythology, not, not psychology, philosophy. <laughs> if you know anything about it, they had many divergent belief. You had the Stoics, you had um, I can't think of others right now, but you had diverging views. But they all had their views which they based their foundation on and they weren't the same, but they could all defend their views. Um, they, were, they were masters at defending their thinking and living. 
Well, what does that mean with us? Well, we can defend our faith with wisdom arguments, insisting more on doctrinal accuracy and rational discussions rather than true Christ-likeness. Within the church, and this one hits close home to me, within church, we can master hermeneutics to out-argue others and to convince them that our argument and our position is the right one. In our world, going out to evangelizing is sometimes nothing more than to try to convince the person that we meet that our worldview makes more sense than their worldview. It's the way of wisdom. Our belief system is more of a crusade sometimes to bring unbelievers to acknowledge the truth of our belief system and not so much as bringing them into Christ's cross kingdom. So are the mind games of wisdom. Turn with me now, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll look at the Greeks, and we'll look at what God says about them. First Corinthians 1, we'll start at verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He is talking directly of the Greek orators, the Greek wisdom, the Greek philosophers. That's exactly what he's talking about in these verses. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And had God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught or nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God hath made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The power of the cross, the effect of the cross, we must never have any other position or reality. Let's also turn to John chapter 12. Turn to John chapter 12, you had your Bible with you. It's a very interesting, very interesting uh, situation here. And I think I'm going to read a little bit into the into the scripture here, but I, I think you can understand it. Probably it could very possibly be true. In John chapter 12, in verse 20, we have some Greeks coming to the disciples. And it says here, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, what do you think the Greeks wanted to see Jesus for? We're not really told. They're here, they're worshipping, but they want to see Jesus, and they're Greeks. Let's imagine 
they were intrigued with what Jesus taught. They were here to come to worship, but then they heard this Jesus, and they probably were in contact with him. They probably heard some of his messages. Maybe they heard some of the Sermon on the Mount, and they were some of those people who were astounded at his doctrine. I don't know. But it seemed like they wanted to see Jesus. What did they want of Jesus? Maybe they wanted him to come up to their town where they came from and, and have a debate or have a discussion that Jesus' ideas, our ideas, come up, Lord Jesus, come up, Jesus, rather, and we'll have a debate in our town. Let's have a debate of ideas and belief systems and see who wins. So do you think Jesus would go on with that? And Jesus answered those disciples that came and said, The hour is come that the Son of Man shall be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Somehow, Jesus always brought everyone back to the cross. He didn't even enter into their arena of discussion of ideas. He just said, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die. Except the cross has its effect. You will have no influence or power or uh, spiritual effect. And then he said, the way of the cross, Jesus said, is the way of life. So the Greeks, they had wisdom. And the Lord Jesus said, wisdom is not going to cut it. Law is not going to cut it. Wisdom is not going to cut it. Well, let's try the third way, the way of power. Who do you think in Jesus' day would have represented power? The only dumb answers are the ones you don't give, so you have any answers. The Romans. The Romans. The Romans were appreciative of both law and wisdom. They had both, but they were pre dominantly or ultimately preoccupied with power. The Romans' objective was world dominance. Through Caesars and swords, the Romans subjected the neighboring nations and cultures through brute force and military power. They were soldiers with authority, and all of Rome wore power with pride. The way to cause the world to become into a more favorable situation is that you can control it, right? Isn't that the way it's in your home? If you can control your home, if you can control your children, if you can control your church, if you have control, you can mold it the way you want it. And you can make it look the way you want it to look. You can make it walk the way you want it to walk. You make it act, speak, you got the power. In Roman rule, they took control and they made sure no competitor gets a foothold or a threat to their power. That's the Romans. Well, we're not Romans, are we? We are not bothered with power, are we? Well, we like power because we want things to go our way. In our marriages, we can play power games. Except games are supposed to be fun. But I tell you what, a power game in a marriage is not fun. Like Romans... We often can be preoccupied with power. 
the struggle for supremacy, protecting our personal rights. Determined and defensive, we watch our chances to project ourselves into dominance. And we are we assert ourselves. After all, we are supposed to have self-esteem, aren't we? Even in Christianity, there are things like self-realization and self-empowerment. They are the power sins that are in the individual. And, and in institutions or churches, you have politics, prejudice, and hidden agenda. They are the power sins of institutions, even in respectable garb. I know out of the meetings, I would have heard from different people how some of those power plays go on. Dale Heisey can get, tell you stories of some of the experiences he's had. Now, Dale Heisey has had a quite a, he's a quite a colorful char- character. I think he was probably pretty hard to get along with already in his life. I think so. But he can tell you of power plays to get him out of position. Things that went in churches that were totally wrong. Well, let's look at a, a passage here in Mark 10. You want to turn to Mark 10, and we'll see about power play in the churches. In Mark 10, in verse 35, starting at verse 35, we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, coming to Jesus, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever we desire of thee. We, we shall desire. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to, what I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Jesus, we understand that soon you're going to have a throne. We know you're a king. We know that at some point very soon you're going to have a throne. And when you have a throne, you got power. You got a position. And Lord Jesus, we want to be right up with you. We like this. Could we, Lord Jesus, and I said, Lord Jesus, Master, is it okay? We want this request. Will you give it to us? We want this one request. We want to sit right up next to you. Do you see a political power maneuver here? An undercover attempt to advantage? Well, what's the next verse? And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Now that word much displeased is a... Let's face it, they were angry. (laughs) They were mad. I mean, uh, the same word is used... When Jesus healed a uh, he, when Jesus healed a uh, a man on the Sabbath in the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He was he was ready to bite bullets. So these disciples they were mad. He said, "What do those upstarts think they're doing? We're going to have to we're going to have to get up today." We, we, I don't know what they thought. But, of course, what they did not realize, and many of us, we do not realize, is their hearts were a mirror image of John and James. Their hearts were exactly the same kind of heart because if you don't care about who's in a power and authority, you don't mind if they have it. But they wanted it because they wanted it and they thought the others were maneuvering it. It made everybody upset. So what do we do now? Everybody's mad at everybody. You ever have a church like that? Well, Jesus called them together. He called them to him. He called, hey, come on in. Time for, a, time for a huddle here. And he said to them, You know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man 
came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Give his life. Somehow, Jesus always brought them back to the cross. Jesus said, I go the way of the cross. And he said, so will my disciples. The law brings not righteousness, but bondage. Wisdom does not bring perception, but it brings dissolution. Power brings not freedom, but it brings oppression. What we need is the way of the cross. How would you describe the way of the cross? There's a lot of ways to describe it. We want to get into it more. It has been described, the way of the, of the cross has been described, the upside-down kingdom. It has been ca- labeled counter-cultural. It has been called an alternative society. This gospel, this good news, is ultimately the announcement of a new king with a new kind of reign or a new kingdom dynamic. Why is it new? Well, it doesn't go by law. It doesn't go by wisdom. It doesn't go by power. It goes... Its its values are wrapped up in something called the cross. Now, the way of the cross will mean nothing to you unless you know what it represents. And the way of the cross will do nothing for you unless you enter in and embrace it. The way of the cross will mean nothing to you unless you understand what it represents. And the way of the cross will do nothing for you unless you enter it and embrace it. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. That was our, our Lord Jesus coming from the indescribable glories of heaven to this wicked and cruel earth, not to model law or wisdom or power, but to model the life of the cross. He came. He was poor. He was unprivileged. He was dependent. And he began his ministry with intense suffering. As you think of the temptation in the wilderness, it started with intense suffering. But through all his earthly ministry, he had all the legal authority. Though he had all wisdom, though he had all power at his disposal, he deliberately rejected every one of them to do his father's will. And it was his father's will that he goes to the cross to die as a sacrifice for all mankind. In the garden, he agonized beyond what we can imagine, asking the Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? But there was no other way. There was no other way to sacrifice for the sins of mankind. There was no other way to purchase and to redeem the bride, his future bride. He had to go this way. There was no other way to bring the Gentiles and the Jews together into one body. There was no other way to release the Spirit of God upon humanity. The Spirit of God, which comes to redeem and to cleanse and to empower sinners and turn them into saints. The way of the cross is the only way for Jesus. He went that way. Are you not glad he did? So on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Now for many professing Christians, this is the reality. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. 
Jesus died for my sins. That old account was settled long ago. My sins are forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. Praise the Lord. Now, that's all true for a true child of God. But it's more than that. When we talk about the way of the cross, it's the way Jesus went. Let's turn to Luke chapter 9 for another passage. He went that way, and what does he do? In Luke chapter 9, these verses are very familiar, but we need to look at them as we look at the way of the cross. Luke chapter 9, verse 21, And he straightly charged them, Right after, Jesus, uh, right after Peter made that confession that thou art the Christ, he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must go the way of the cross. And be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the gospel is on a hill far away. Jesus died for my sins, but it's also a reality of life in every believer today. The cross that is celebrated in most of Christianity today is basically theological and they offer basically a theological salvation as opposed to a life-shattering, perception-altering reality that imposes a new way of life. That's the cross. Salvation. The new birth is acknowledging that you are a sinner. You recognize deeply your own corruption and guilt And before God that you deserve hell and banishment from him forever. Salvation is that. But it's also coming to God and relinquishing your right of ownership. It's relinquishing your right to rule your own life. When we sing or say he is Lord, that is what is meant by those words. It's giving him yourself. I'll read these words here. You don't have to turn to it. John 13. This is, of course, a very familiar passage because we read it during foot washing. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I, then your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, ye ought also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Kingdom living. The whole Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of cross living. To go up, you must first go down. The meek shall inherit the earth, not the powerful. That's what it means. It's an upside-down kingdom. You overcome evil with good. You win your husband with a respectful, loving attitude and behavior. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Everything is just opposite, the way of the cross. Can you imagine a home in which the way of the cross is the way of the home? Can you imagine that? Others first. The love chapter in full bloom. The love chapter is nothing else but the cross in action. It's self-sacrificing to do the will of God and for the good of others. It's a way that influences by serving others. A way that seeks to be last and not first. A way that involves losing one's life in order to truly find life. That's the way of the cross. 
I'm going to read, I know you don't like it, well, I don't know if you do or not, but I'm going to read something A.W. Tozer wrote, and I think most of, many of you will probably be familiar with it, but it, it fits so well this morning, it actually communicates better than I ever could. So I'm going to read his um, article, The Old Cross and the New. You're probably familiar with that, some of you. Maybe not too many. Okay. Here's what he says. All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. This was penned back in 1966, by the way. So that's what he calls modern times. He said, it's like the old cross, but it's different. The likenesses are superficial, but the differences are fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of Christian life. And from that new philosophy have come new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new type of preaching. This new evangelicalism, no, evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same and its emphasis is not as before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not, a, not opposed to the human race, Rather, it is a friendly pal, and, if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. His life motivation is unchanged. <clears throat> he still lives for his own pleasure. Only now he takes delight in singing courses and watching religious movies instead of singing baldy songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment, though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. <clears throat> the new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangel evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key in public interests by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands, rather it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers, only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current view vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. The philosophy back of this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the, mind, all of the man, and he did it completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under death sentence. There is no commutation and no escape. God cannot approve of any of the fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or beautiful in the eyes of men. 
write this one down. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him again in newness of life. That is the cross. That evangelical evangel, that evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not one of compromise, but ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It always stands on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess that life must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual, the condemned man who would find life in Jesus Christ? How can this theology be transformed into life? Simply, he must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Having done this, let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen Savior, and from him will come life and rebirth and cleansing and power. The cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus now puts an end to the sinner, and the power that raised Christ from the dead now raises him to a new life along with Christ. To any who may object to this or count it merely a narrow and private view of truth, let me say God has set his hallmark of approval upon this message from Paul's day to the present. Whether stated in these exact words or not, this has been the content of all preaching that has brought life and power to the world through the centuries. The mystics, the reformers, the revivalists have put their emphasis here and the signs and wonders and mighty operations of the Holy Ghost gave witness to God's approval. Dare we, the heirs of such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we, with our stubby pencils, erase the lines of the blueprint or alter the pattern shown us on the mount? May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross, and we will know the old power. A.W. Tozer. 1966. Now, my, one of the problems of my messages is it's usually not very practical. I'm usually more theological. Here are some practical thoughts. If you go the way of the cross, instead of self-will, there is yieldedness. Instead of pride, there is lowliness of mind. Instead of our own interests, there are the interests of others. Instead of complaining, there will be contentment. Instead of frustration, there is thankfulness. Instead of resistance, there is a resignation to divine will. Instead of anger, there is peace. Instead of arrogance, there is humility. Instead of cruelty, there is gentleness. And so the question for us today is, which way will you go? Will you go the way of the law? Will you go the way of wisdom? Will you go the way of power? Or will you go the way of the cross? The only way approved by God. 
Why don't we just kneel for a word of prayer here at closing? Our Father, our God, we come before you and we have nothing to say except, Lord, thou art right. Lord, when the Peter was asked, when the disciples were asked whether they would also leave, Peter said, where should we go? Thou has, thou alone has the words of life. Lord, there is no other way. There is no other place. It is the cross. It is not pleasant. It is hard. It hurts. But Lord, it is the way that you, Lord Jesus, also, because of the cross, because of the joy that was set before you, you also endured the cross and you despised the shame. And now you are set down at the right hand of the Father. Even so, also, we also, Lord, need to, for the joy that is set before us, we also need to endure that cross, knowing by faith that there is an answer by and by, that the saints of old, there in Hebrews 11, they all saw a city far away, and they all suffered. They all went through the cross in one form or another. And, Lord, how can we think that we are any different? But, Lord, this morning, we just give ourselves to you and ask you, Lord, to instruct us and to teach us and to help us to understand the way that you have called for us to go. I pray, Lord, for each one of us here. I pray there's none here, Lord, that do not understand this way. And also pray, Lord, that there may be none here that will refuse to go this way. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.